Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings' excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one. So think ahead. Thanks for listening. Hello there. Episode 96 of Cycling and Alignment is a discussion with Aaron Barczyk. Aaron's the founder, owner, and chief welder at Mosaic Cycles. I recently became a Mosaic Cycles dealer, and I've been racing around and riding around all summer on a custom GT1AR. It's an amazing whip. It's all custom titanium, and they did a super cool Prismatica 2.0 paint job on it, which is stunning. It's one of the best bikes I've ever owned. It's got all kinds of cool stuff on it, like a coefficient RR handlebar, of course, a Jelu saddle, and also, of course, it's kitted out with Enduro bearings. Shimano also helped me out with a 12-speed Ultegra Di2 Grupo, which is amazing. Took me a long time to jump over to the world of electronic Grupos. I'm maybe a little bit of a old-school curmudgeon in the world of shifting, but I finally jumped over, and I'm definitely happy I waited till this generation. The 12-speed DI2 group means you don't have to have junction boxes and other miscellaneous stuff hanging off your bike. You also don't have the external wires. If you go with the wired less model, which is what I did, or configuration, I should say. Pretty good stuff. So far, I'm extremely happy with the Grupo, and I'm thrilled with the bike. If you're a geometry geek, or if you just want to understand more about how bicycle geometry affects your handling and your ride quality, this will be a great pod for you. Aaron and I get into quite a bit about the specifics of things like trail and bottom bracket drop. We also just talk about why people may or may not want a custom bicycle. A lot of people think of custom bikes as simply being the right length tubes that are either welded together or glued together or fabricated together in some fashion or another. But custom bikes are a little bit more than that. So we kind of unpack those qualities and discuss why you may or may not be a candidate for a custom bike. I'm really excited to be a Mosaic dealer. I've already worked with them on quite a few projects and I've known Aaron for a long time. And it just made a lot of sense for me to partner with someone who is a Colorado-based company. Their office is about 3K from mine. So if I have any questions, they're just a quick trip away. If I need to see them in person, also my clients who are local can go in and see their production facility and get a tour and 
see how meticulous they are about their welding and their painting. They've got in-house finish work and their finish work is absolutely top notch. So that's all pretty cool. You can go there and pick out the exact color you want. Even on the most amazing monitor we have this day, it, there's nothing that replaces seeing the actual paint on a tube in person. So that's a big plus for people who live locally. As always, thank you for listening to my podcast. I hope you find today's conversation insightful and entertaining. And as always, pedal quickly and pedal consciously. Thanks for listening. Aaron, Aaron Barczyk, welcome. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> welcome to Cycling Glad Alignment. to be here. Yeah. Thanks for making time, man. Yeah. Yeah. You're the owner, president, Grand Poobah, uh, and creator of Mosaic. That's Cycles. correct. Um, founder, owner, have various other titles mm -hmm. along the way. Yeah. Do a lot of a lot. Yeah. How long, when did you start Mosaic? How old is it? Mosaic was started, uh, I think in 2009. I think we're creeping up on year 14 next nice. year. Yeah. Um, started by myself, uh, very small. It's been a very kind of bootstrapped off the ground, bit by bit thing. Grassroots. Growth. Yeah. Grassroots, yeah. very grassroots. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we've grown quite a bit in the last, you know, 10 years from just me in a small space to one person and two and then three. And, uh, there's nine of us mm -hmm. now generally. Okay. Between our fabrication and our finished work and kind of our sales marketing staff mm -hmm. and me. Yeah. 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 So it's good. It's, okay. been, it's been a journey. Yeah. And where did you get your training as a titanium bicycle maker? Good question. Um, so my story is, um, kind of tied in with, with the Boulder area for sure. Um, tied in with just the cycling world and being an athlete. Um, I had come out here to Boulder. That's where we're at right now for everybody who's yes. listening. In case. Um, snow today. It's nice and chilly. Like winter is here. Apparently. It's here. It was very abrupt this year. Just yeah. Full on. Yeah. Um, and so I'd come out here with family a lot. Um, and have some, a very athletic family. Uh, my aunt is out here. She's been here for years as a professional triathlete, triathlete. Where are you from? Um, I'm from St. Louis originally. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so, um, when I was looking at what to do post, I guess, high school, mm -hmm. makes me feel old having this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just decided to move to Boulder and be a part of the cycling world out here. My intent was to go to school eventually, but maybe gain residency in Colorado first. So yeah, kind of did that. Um, so spent a year or so just poking around, riding my bike, trail running, mm -hmm. just going on all the adventures. I mean, this place is great for that. There's um, a lot of adventures to be had. Yeah, and part of what I did that year is um, I drove my little Subaru all the way up to Ashland, Oregon to take a frame building course at the United Bicycle Institute. Okay. Um, in 2002, I think it was. And that was steel you were working with? It was it? a Thai titanium course. Um, okay. I don't know why I was attracted to Thai. Maybe a lot of people were riding Serratas in this area and it just seemed like a pretty awesome material. Mm -hmm. um, you wouldn't know it, but we were actually riding road bikes on dirt roads back then. Wait, it what? was like the thing to no, do. I, I never did that. <laughs> no, come on. <laughs> I know your story. You did it all the time. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that was like, I was living up in Netherlands off of a dirt road and that's just what you did is you take your 23s and 25 C tires and you 
just right on dirt. It's great. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's probably where I got the, the notion that Ty was just this material that withstood it all. Mm-hmm. Um, it was certainly material that could um, be performance oriented too, because people were just ripping on it. Yeah. You know, um, I'd never really saw it as, uh, I don't know, something that wouldn't be performance worthy. Um, and so I took, I signed up for their titanium TIG welding class, mm-hmm. which is super fun. It's like a two week thing. They're still going strong. Um, Ashland's a beautiful town up in Oregon and ended up getting a job at another manufacturer, Dean Bicycles, shortly after as kind of their intern almost. Yep. And just, I ended up staying there for six or seven years. Um, going to school at the same time at the University of Colorado Boulder, started out in the mechanical engineering department um, and quickly switched over to the integrative physiology department. Okay. Um, engineering was, was fun, but it's kind of bummed out on the, just the scene of it. And yeah, I don't know. Um, I was, the story goes, I was approached by the biomechanics professor who was kind of our neighbor in Netherlands. And he was like, come take my class. And I was like, Whoa, this is like, science and physiology how cool is that uh-huh. um so i was just really drawn to it um switched over and ended up taking all the fun courses as an athlete that i would be interested in like biomechanics physiology anatomy cool. immunology endocrinology yeah just all those allergies yeah it's like each one's like a different language practically mm-hmm. <laughs> um with the intent that i don't know maybe i would do masters in biomechanics or you know, exercise phys. That was kind of my lens for everything. Okay. Um, and then somehow ended up starting mosaic. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So it took me, it took me about almost seven years to get through school, uh, because I was essentially going to school part-time and making bikes yeah. more than full-time. Yeah. So like my passion was pretty, pretty set by the end of my, my schooling career. And, um, I, as I, let's see, I graduated, quit my job at Dean, uh, took a job, I think at U bikes, you know, university bicycles, mm-hmm. uh, which was, which was awesome. I really loved working there for almost the year that I was there and started mosaic just as like, all right, let's figure out how to do this. Um, full well knowing that I wanted to pursue it as a career. Like, I think I was just not really getting fulfilled at the time of, seeing what I was doing as like a career path that could be sustainable long-term and looking around and just like, where do you go to do this? Mm-hmm. There's really, I mean, there's companies all over the country, but none really near me. And um, lots of doorways would probably have to open to get into one of those spots. Um, so we started Mosaic. Yeah. That was kind of the. And did you go out and, and find investors or did you just like <laughs> find credit cards and start buying stuff and making brains or how did that? Totally. Um, did not go out and find investors, um, just like borrowed some family money and bought some tooling and yeah. bit by bit just have added yeah. over the years. And it was very, very simple at first, uh, you know, kind of constrained by what you can do with the tooling you have. Mm-hmm. Um, also a very different time in, in the bike world 20, yeah. 20 years ago when we were still riding caliber brake bikes and yeah inch and eight head tubes and straight steer tubes and there's no, only no one. integrated internal anything. And, right. Right. Um, there were only three bottom bracket standards, right? English, Italian, and French. 
yeah right yeah exactly <laughs> yeah english italian and french and yeah no no pf30s or bb30s or crazy craziness and um BB i mean right. i guess we were making a lot of mountain bikes 20 20 i guess 29ers would have been around for yeah. a few years yeah and she what else and then cross cross, cross probably a little disc break a little disc break here and there yeah bb7 wound up forks bunch of old components they probably nobody knows about wound up anymore. forks right? i think they still exist don't they oh yeah for sure yeah yeah they, they've always made a nice fork um and then just kind of i would say it took me a few years to just get my feet under me and kind of understand what the process was going to be and mm-hmm. create some connections with bike shops with some local people that were pretty big advocates for me um all the while I'm working a full-time job, you know, I ended up working at the pros closet. It's part of my story as well with, with, uh, Nick and Pete, yep. um, which was pretty awesome. I mean, it was like right next to my mosaic shop for mm-hmm. a few years. And I would just post stuff on eBay all day long and yep. cruise over to my friends. shop after, after work and work till midnight or something crazy okay. for a good long while. And, um, it's, it's so long ago. I, it, in some respects, like I don't even really remember that time. Mm-hmm. At this point, <laughs> it's kind of like a blur. Like I did that, um, so it was it was very, uh, it was very um, very simple and just a lot of a lot of work, mm-hmm. a lot of ton of work, which really has never changed. Yeah. And then yeah, you, know, you kind of get the ball rolling with something, and you make some good relationships. We found some really awesome shops to work with in our early years, um, like above category and fellow Smith or and Pro Peloton. Pro Peloton was essentially in Chris Soden. They kind of like gave us our start, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did a lot of bikes kind of at the tail end of that Serata area um, where Serata was kind of phasing out and doing crazy things and leaving the doorway open for a brand like Mosaic to come into the market and play right next to some big, bigger brands. Mm-hmm. Um, next to Lightspeed and yeah. that kind of stuff. Uh, lights be a little bit more, you know, more of like the indie fabs and the Serratos, you know, at the, at that time, okay. early two thousands, those brands are huge and, yeah. you know, East coast for indie fab, um, Serato all over the place and just them kind of fading and exiting the market and then carbon fiber bikes come like quickly yeah. in those early two thousands, mid two thousands and shook everything up. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. I mean, it's just the production of carbon was so. Uh, so easy to do comparatively mm-hmm. that it just kind of took over the market and handmade went through quite the evolution in those yeah. years, I would say. Yeah. Um, but the notion for Mosaic was always uh, to be kind of like a professional, professional competitive brand that would sell through bike shops and through dealers, mm-hmm. which made us pretty unique. Um, and learning from my experience with my previous company working at and just seeing the lay of the land of, you know why people were didn't necessarily want to buy handmade bikes um because of turnaround time and quality and relationships and access and um just the viability of it was essentially what we started competing on right away and um, which turns out was was not easy but it, those were all really great things to compete on mm. like if it takes a, a year to get a custom bike and i can do the same thing in two months you're pumped. Right. Um, and working with bike shops has been great. I've always considered the IBD type of shop that we work with to just be 
the best in class of what our bike industry has to offer. Mm -hmm. And so if you can put, put a pop product in shops like that, um, there's a huge amount of trust that you get in that. And so if you can do that, you can probably sell bikes to, to people as well. Mm -hmm. Um, kind of like the original influencers. <laughs> so mm -hmm. in, in a way, um, and like, you know, expertise is, is high on my list of things that I want to see in our industry. And I want people to, yeah. to know and trust and yeah. get good recommendations for the products they buy and the bikes they ride and where they ride them and how they ride them. So it was always just kind of like a, almost like a good logical fit. Like the more you get to know me, yeah. you'll, you'll probably hear a lot about that. <laughs> um, and kind of the way we went. So the more partners we've gained, the, the more kind of accolade we've we've had and we've done some trade shows and the NABS, the North American Handmade Bicycle Show and won some awards um, and have always just kind of played it forward into the next yeah. thing, the next scale, the next evolution, the next evolution. Yeah. Kept up with industry standards, whether that's disc brakes or PV standards or current trends and wait, keep up with good luck. Well, yeah. In the bike exactly. industry. Yeah. I mean, there's like a balance in our world. Yeah. Of, um, like we're not launching a new road bike every year for right. sure. We're not, but when we see something that is of value to the people that ride bikes industry as a whole, mm -hmm. um, that makes sense. Like, yeah, of course we're going to do it. Right. 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 Like it's by making smart choices. Mm. So, uh, and then here we are 14 years later from that inception of mosaic and, um, we have paint shop now. We have a really awesome machine shop facility. We have a staff of people who are super passionate about what we do and um, are very dedicated to the craft mm -hmm. and to the way that we build bikes in Mosaic. Um, and it's kind of phenomenal. It's really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And you guys just moved into a newer facility like last oh, year. Oh, we're always moving into a new facility. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as you move in, you're thinking about the next the one. The next one. <laughs> yeah. It's terrible. Yeah. It's, okay. No, we did. Uh, yeah, we have kind of gone through, I think we're on Mosaic Shop 6.0. So it's probably... You've about, moved five times? Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. I didn't know that. That sounds terrible, right? I think I only knew about three from the original to the one before. What, one. Which one do you consider the original? One? Well, the one when you were next door to, to the pros closet. Is that the original? That's probably There was two different locations up there. Oh. We had, okay. like early days, we had this yeah. little 800 square foot space. Okay. Right next to this huge grow room. <laughs> yeah. And it just always, whenever they were picking, the whole shop would just smell like weed. Oh my God, it's terrible. It's so bad. <laughs> it's so bad. Uh, and then we kind of moved across the way to a little bit bigger space. And then we were on, out on East Boulder. Okay. And then we had the paint shop. So two locations. And yep. then we consolidated into the paint shop for a little bit. Yep. And most recently this year, we're in two two units that are right next door to each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's Spectrum Powder Works, or it used to be called Spectrum Powder Works. We call it Spectrum Paint and Powder Works now. Okay. Even though we're not really powder coating anymore. Okay. It just sounds cool. Yeah. It just blows off the tongue a little more uh -huh. easily. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and we, you know, we, um, that's going on about eight years mm -hmm. now. Um, Spectrum was a long time kind of contract painter for us. We were looking around knowing that finished work was just, key to what would happen mm -hmm. for us and just feeling kind of two major things like out of control in terms of the turnaround and being able to get it in a certain timeline and consistency and quality um, and then even more so just the the branding component of what finish work was for us like it was 
a decade ago, kind of not to a total free for all, but certainly when it came to paint, it was kind of a free for all. Like you look at what we're doing around then, it was all different. Uh, there was very little cohesion okay. in the styling, in the colorways, okay. in any of that. And um, I mean, we we're doing great stuff, but it, it definitely felt like it wasn't building towards anything that was ours, mm. right? So you want people to to see a mosaic anywhere and even though it maybe have a different color or a different layout, there's a common theme. Is that kind of what you're getting yeah, at? Right? Yeah, exactly. We, we like to use um, almost like the restaurant analogy, mm -hmm. right? You go to a restaurant and they have a menu and you go to that restaurant because you like what's on their menu to mm -hmm. some extent. And there might be a little bit of variability in what you can do or ask for. Yeah. Um, but that sense of styling can be really important to mm. brand identity. Yeah. Um, and for us, for me, even like crossover as a designer of saying, like, well, this is my thing. Like, I want it to be what I want it to be to some extent. Right. And of course, I want that to resonate with people. Right. Um, and I want people to be stoked on what our style is, mm -hmm. but I also want it to be our style. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's taken us easily all of those eight years to build our brand styling. Okay. For sure. That makes sense. I mean, mm -hmm. I think from my experience, when people are given a completely blank slate and they want to do something creative, most people really get lost or overwhelmed. They don't know what to do. Yeah. Right. So mm -hmm. if, but as you said, when you go to a restaurant, you've got a menu of cool stuff to pick from and you know, it's a restaurant you like, yeah. then your choices get easier. <clears throat> and then maybe you make a request like, okay, I want the sauce on the side or whatever. Oh, yeah. Right. You know, the secret menu. Yeah. Like, yeah. Exactly. Don't tell anybody that. Right. Don't tell anybody about the secret, secret mosaic menu. menu. <laughs> the secret mosaic menu. Right. Yeah. And I mean it um if you're if you're trying to make a viable company that makes things, like making things in and of itself is a really hard thing to do. Right. It's time consuming. It's like tons of investment, yep. tons of skill. Um nobody does it, right? That's why nobody does it. That's mm. why it's easier to just have something made for you. Mm. Um, but then also building a sustainable brand around the thing that you make. It's like critical that yeah. every time you do something, it it emulates your style and your brand. Mm. And then people can start to resonate with that brand and they come to you for it as opposed to coming to you for what ultimately, I don't know, somebody else already somebody makes, else or, already makes yeah. or somebody else wants. And yeah. um, we certainly see a lot of that in our in our little niche. It's like music, right? Like you follow a really, really good band, a band that's around for 25, 30 years. Yeah. And if they do it right, they create music that somehow still sounds like them, but at the same time is innovative. Right. That's yeah. a hard line to walk, yeah. right? But it's, yeah. it's a creative process. And it is a creative process. And it's one where you have to learn to kind of hold your ground and and know, learn to say no to things yeah. sometimes, which is very, very not, it's not an easy thing to do, especially mm -hmm. early days of Mosaic, where you're just trying to kind of make bikes and pay the bills. everything, pay the bills and everything yeah. counts. And um, yeah, but it's also, it's probably more rewarding to look back and be where we're at now and say, okay, what we're doing is resonating certainly with our finished work. I and mean, we could talk about the product line as well mm -hmm. for the frames, um, and start to see it just like be copied everywhere. Mm. But what's that old saying? Yeah. Every, nothing's new. Most right? sincere form of flattery. Oh, yeah, that's hundred percent. Right. Yeah. Like it's, they both apply. Um, right? I always say like, we do a lot of fades right now. Of course it's like our thing. Yeah. Um, we are certainly not the first brand artist designer to ever fade anything. Mm -hmm. um, but the way that we are doing it, I think is incredibly unique. Mm. Um, and you, 
if you're looking, you can kind of see this start to emulate through other brands. If not, yeah. I could show you specific examples where it's just downright copy, straight hundred percent copy, yeah. which is like, ah, um, and I'm sure that, you know, like this happens all over the place. Um, mm-hmm. It's fun to see it though, you know, to see where like the, the lines of where we fade our bikes, the, the, the breaks between the tie, start to get used in other spaces, the usage of our logo, how we knock it out, starting to get used in places. And um, we also, you know, we make a lot of bikes too, make a lot of frames. So we have a lot of content out there. So, yeah, you know, whereas other custom brands aren't maybe pushing out as many frames, we just have all these different iterations of colorways and and contrasting colors and analogous colors and different layouts that we have um, that just kind of keep popping up in you places, have, so. you have a lot of different models too. If I look on your site, yeah, I don't 12, look in the site. I like that. <laughs> uh, working on a new website. Um, Me too. Me too. Yeah, always be working on a new website. <laughs> always a new always, website. Always, always be working on a new shop, <laughs> and always be working on a new website. Yes, there's probably something else in there. <laughs> um, we do, but it's. I think when you break our product line down, it's it's pretty straightforward. Mm. Um, like we have series. Uh, G series for gravel, R series yep. for road, yep. M series for mountain. Um, we do have an X series for cyclocross. I don't know if anybody cyclocross. Well, so we should um, yeah. we should unpack that a bit because <laughs> I just had a conversation with Mark the other day, who's uh-huh. your employee. I yeah. work with him all the time. Yeah, I'm, Mark Carrier. Mark uh, destroys inbox and he's so good at getting back to me. So thank you, Mark. Shout out, Mark. Um, he, uh, I'm like, wait, what about this? But he was explaining to me, one of my clients asked specifically, this guy said, uh, he's thinking about purchasing a mosaic, making an order. And last year he did unbound on a true cyclocross bike and he got beat up quite a bit. And I didn't ask him what particular bike he's on. So I don't know the answer to that. And I also didn't ask relevant Mm -hmm. questions that are maybe more to the point, like, well, did you ride with 52 PSI in your tires Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever. There's lots of ways to- I was going to say like- Obliterate yourself. uh, Was there a person in that race that didn't get beat up? Right, right. Exactly. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's a really hard race. That's like the whole point of it. It's like Um, nine hours of baby heads. Yeah. The cycle cross thing is funny. Um, I mean, you know, from being a Boulderite yourself, the scene here for cycle cross is- was huge and still is huge. It's huge. It, it's, still is huge. It's plateaued. Yeah. But it's not, not a lot of incoming people yeah. like getting pumped on it. And like, we are not really doing our team small batch or mosaic riders club thing as much as we were. Yeah. Um, that's how we, you and I really got to know yeah, each other. Yeah. Just what? 20 single barrel shout out demo. Yeah. 2011, so 2012, 2013. Somewhere in there. Cause at, the, at peak, we had nationals here in Boulder. At 2013. I think. Yeah. And we were doing Team yeah. Small Batch at the time, which was kind of a collab between Pro Peloton and Zach Lee. Shout out Zach Lee. Yep. And Damo, who was doing the service course, um, kind of a local pro mechanic. Before he quit to become a lawyer. A lawyer. How often does that happen? Shout out, double shout yeah, out, double. Wow, good way to go. <laughs> Damo. <laughs> and he was later. looking at, I don't know, this is my perception of it. He was looking at what we were doing with Small Batch and getting some FOMO and he was like, well, I'm going to do my own team and call it single barrel. And yep. we'll just ride single speeds and drink whiskey. Mm-hmm. And what a great combination. It was amazing. We had so much fun. That was like such a great time for it was Mosaic. Super fun. Yeah. So we got true temper donated tubes. I don't remember how it went down. So, I just remember making like 20 single speed steel true temper bikes yeah. Yeah. that we painted all blue. Blue with gold accents. Yeah. And we had these like gold stripey things. So I got to say, jersey. you know, I've 
I've been in the sport 35 years or whatever. And so I've thus owned and sold a lot of bikes. Yeah. And there's very few bikes that I'm like, I shouldn't have sold that. Oh, you sold yours? I did. And I shouldn't have. I did too. I shouldn't have. I repainted mine and then uh, I just didn't have any garage space and I sold a bunch of bikes. Actually, I probably sold it through the press closet. I sold a lot of bikes to them. Garage space is always a Um, thing. It's always a challenge. Yeah. And and or for me, it would have been like a freak out moment at the end of the year. And I'm like, oh, shit, I need some cash. (laughs) Let's get rid of some bikes. What can I liquidate? Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, Those bikes. Oh, man, those bikes were just so like solid. They were. They were so stable. So stable and solid. Yeah. Yeah. There's something to that. Maybe we'll talk about that soon, too. Yeah. In the context of this. I'd love to talk about your thoughts on tie carbon steel. And because I get those questions a lot and it's a very complicated topic because of course it depends on the application of those materials. Yeah. Well, let's go back to our product line because I think that kind of leads into some of it. Um, We're not doing a steel bike right now. We do have an RS1 model, a road bike steel road frame that we just really haven't produced since COVID hit um, Mm. due to just distribution of steel and titanium taking over. And there's some some you know barriers to selling steel in terms of pricing as well mm-hmm. but uh okay so we have series and within those series we have a couple different models like on the gravel line well let's just go by tire size right like it's mm-hmm. there's let's just think about this as a spectrum and on one end of the spectrum you have pure road somebody out there is still rocking a 23c tire and so, loving it. You're right. Maybe you're not in Boulder, right. but probably yeah. on the West Coast for sure. Yep. And yep. it's amazing. I don't know. Every time if you ride enough of these gravel bikes and you jump back on a pure road bike, mm-hmm. it's just so much fun. They go fast. Yep. And it's efficient yep. and you can cover a lot of ground and you yep. can do these amazing descents and these climbs. Mm-hmm. Um, I always at least throw a 23 back on for Flagstaff week. We do Flagstaff week every year. It's like yeah. this thing. Yeah. We go and ride Flagstaff every morning, which for anybody who doesn't know what Flagstaff is, it's like the quintessential climb in Boulder. It's the queen. Yeah, it's like 1,800 feet of climbing or so. Mm -hmm. If you can do it under 30 minutes, you've got my respect. Mm -hmm. I've never done it under 30 minutes, but this is the year. 30 minutes is a solid barrier. It is when you're 190 pounds, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we should. Anyway, Mm -hmm. um, so so that's one end of the spectrum. The other end would essentially be a mountain bike. Mm-hmm. Like a big tire, we just like relaunched the M- we relaunched this MT2 model that we have hardtail titanium mountain bike frame fits a 2.6 tire. Okay, and I didn't think I was gonna like 2.6, but I love them. I love holy 2.6s. crap! I am just blown away at like a nice compliant 2.6 fast rolling tire for riding trails around here. I raced the firepacker on two sixes this year, kind of by accident, and I was like, yeah, it you just crush the descents right. so much fun and so then everything in between is some iteration or version of a model that accommodates a bigger tire but also accommodates the riding style with the geometry of the frame so typically there's a pretty direct correlation between like tire size and head tube angle and bottom bracket height um, as you go more off-road you probably gonna have a slacker head angle mm-hmm. um, to make the bike steer a little more have more stability essentially Yep. Um, and so for us, we have our pure caliper road bike. We have, and that'll fit up to like a 28. Uh, we have our disc brake road bike, the RT2 and the RT1. It will fit around a 30 mm-hmm. plus. So <laughs> it depends on your rim tire combo. Um, and then we have what we call our all road bike, which is a pretty unique model. Mm-hmm. Other, some other brands do it. Um, it's really one of our best selling models and that'll fit up to like a 38 or 40 
it's technically it's in our G series. So we call it a gravel bike still. It kind of takes the best of road handling and the best of a gravel tire and smashes it together and highly capable bike. Great for the Boulder area. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you go up to our GT 145, GT 245 that fits up to about a 45 C tire plus a little bit. Um, and then our adventure gravel bike, which fits up to a 2.2. Mm-hmm. And then you get up to your mountain bike, which fits up to like a two four to two six. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know how that was like one two, three. That's like really seven models, right? So it's really not that many. Mm-hmm. And then we do each one in a one level bike and a two level bike. Two being kind of our starting model, straight gauge tubes. Um, we do them in standard geometry. We're even building some of those models in batches now, so that they're ready to sell. Yeah, hanging on the wall. Just pick your finish work. And the one level bike being more oversized budded tubes, rider specific geo, rider specific tube set choice, choice of any of the finished work that we do all in one included price. Why mess around? Got yeah. to get the good stuff, just get it all. So that brings up a great point, which is when I speak to clients about if they're on the fence about buying a custom bike. Yep. It's like, I think most riders in my experience think about a custom frame as just really being custom cut length tubes. So you go could be. a fit yeah. and then you get that bike and then the top tube is the right length, the head tube is the right length, et cetera. And that's, for me, that's definitely a big part of buying a custom bike. Mm-hmm. But I think the more subtle points that are really significant that people don't, that bring the bike to life are the geometry that's picked for the demands of your event, whatever type of riding you're going right. to do, the tubing layout that's picked, yep. right? So the mm-hmm. diameter tubes and the budding profiles, right? And then on top of that, then you get your own potential capacity to fingerprint it with your own aesthetic vision. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've always thought about this as like a Venn diagram with mm-hmm. like three major overlapping circles. Okay. Um, one being rider fit, essentially your contact points, yeah. right? Like the bike doesn't really matter so much to this. It's just like, where is your saddle located and your handlebars located mm-hmm. in conjunction to where your, your bottom bracket is. Yeah, yeah, your bottom bracket where your feet clip in, right. if you're clipping in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that's one. Um, two would be kind of the performance characteristics of the bike. Think super simple as, is this a road bike or is it a gravel bike or is it a mountain bike? Right. On down to, is this a fast handling road bike or is it more of a stable road bike? Like those are all mm-hmm. chalked up in performance. Um, and then third would be aesthetic. So you kind of nailed them all, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so aesthetics like, do am I white weenie? Do I want this painted? Do right. I not? Um, maybe I just like the color blue, or maybe I just love tie bikes, or maybe I just love the way a carbon bike looks. Like those are all yep. great, great things to think about. Um, and they all overlap. And for any individual rider, they're gonna land somewhere on that Venn diagram with some of those constraints maybe being more important. Like if you're really short or you're really tall. Mm-hmm the fit might be incredibly important because you just don't fit on anything that's off the shelf. Right. And you might have to make a concession because you will have to get a custom geometry bike made for you to actually get something that fits you well. Right. So you may not get to think about a carbon bike or you have to get a custom carbon bike and who knows. Um, So, you know, and maybe you're like really, really drawn to a certain aesthetic and you don't care so much about the fit. You don't care so much about the performance. I just want a road bike. It's hot red. Yeah. Like, that's cool. Yeah. I like that. Um, for us, we're trying to think about it holistically. So take each one of those into account 
within the mosaic model line. So there's kind of a big circle that goes over all the three circles. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, there's somebody like yourself involved, uh, one of our, our partners that would be located hopefully near you, mm -hmm. uh, local to where you are and who understands the type of riding that goes on where you do it and what's the best equipment choices for you to do that. And they kind of help you sort out where you land on that Venn diagram. Um, so it's, you know, it's a big widening, wide ranging scale of where you fit. Mm -hmm. um, we kind of have in our model line, we, you mentioned like tubing choices and it's not just about cutting tubes. And it's, um, we kind of think of it as our models are slightly packaged deals that we've already thought through quite a bit of, of what, where you would land on that, yeah. right? If you're landing on an all road bike, there's typically a configuration that we like to build that all road bike in okay. plus or minus a little bit, right? Like, so it's always pretty much always going to have the same head angle. Mm. It's pretty much always going to have the same chain stay length. It's always going to have the same bottom bracket drop compared to a gravel bike or a road bike. That's where the difference is going to be. Mm -hmm. um, so we've kind of put you in this lane. If you're getting an all road bike, you're probably getting, you're looking for this characteristic of handling in a bike. You have kind of a certain use case for it and we've, we've packaged it up for you. Mm -hmm. um, so all we need to do at that point is maybe tweak a few tube sizes here or there. Typically we do like to build each model in a pretty narrow lane of tube, tube choices. Cause we've already kind of said like, this is what we think an all road bike should handle like compared to a gravel bike mm -hmm. or a road bike. And we've swapped out the majority of the tubes to get there, maybe like 90% of the way. Okay. And we might change it out mostly based on your, your size and weight. That's what I was going to ask. Right? Yeah. Like so if you're six, if you're, and yeah, if you're six, four and two twenty, like, yeah, we're putting in a massive down tube. Right. 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 Um, and then that's kind of, that's kind of it really yeah. ultimately. Um, do the, the, the custom, change? the custom geo. Well, no, not really. Not really. We, we kind of have like a pretty set profile that we use for our okay. tubes. Um, typically they're, at least a size up bigger diameter than a non butted tube and mm -hmm. quite a bit lighter. Okay. Um, but you know, I don't know. Weight's a funny thing now. Like we don't really have the weight discussion as much as mm -hmm. we would have like 10 years ago or well, longer. It seems like there's a period where Ty kind of caught up to steel and carb or caught up to carbon. And now carbon manufacturers are going like stupid. Crazy, light. crazy. I mean, light. you've got 700 gram production frames. Yeah. And they're cool. Right. And they probably to some extent ride really well mm -hmm. because of that now. Mm -hmm. um, who knows about longevity? Right. I don't know. I mean, right. that's certainly part of the reason why you get attracted to a metal bike or even a tie bike specifically is just the longevity of if that's your, your mindset and your personality. Yeah. Like I want a bike I'm going to own yeah. for 10 years then. And I typically would as a frame designer would skew towards that. Yeah. I think that's why we're drawn to tie. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so weight would be a consideration, size would be a consideration, um, and really just what you want the bike to do. Like, uh, I give you a great example of that. We we we've made this bike for myself. We kind of joke about it as the crit spec RT1. Mm -hmm. uh, I took like the biggest tubes I could take and built up this really cool looking super slammed RT1D. And like I just I hate it. It's like I, hate, I hate I hate to admit that I hate it, but yeah, I do. <laughs> It's, it's like, I almost don't ride it because I know that it's just not comfortable. What do you not like about it? It's just beating you up because the tubes are um, so stiff. Yeah. So I did something silly. Like I took our normal down tube and like use that as a top tube. Ah, right. And right. then like took an even bigger tube and use it as a down tube and then okay. like bigger seat stays and 
just just probably a little bit more slammed than I would normally slam myself. Yep. Which is not good for me getting older and um, just super racy, you know, deep, deep profile SES wheels that are stiff as well. And yeah, um, put some big tires on it that I end up having to really run at a high pressure that to get them to perform the way that I wanted to. And it just um, it's so stiff that it just like it doesn't track as well. Mm. Like, especially for like a Flagstaff style descent, that's where you notice it the most, yep. where it just chatters around, essentially chatters around corners, right? Like mm. you're not absorbing as much of the road as you would. Mm-hmm. And so my contrast is I go jump on my all road bike, which is longer wheelbase, longer chainstay, lower bottom racket, um, slower, slightly slower handling, not by much, very similar fit. Yeah. And that bike just rips. Yeah. Like. I get on and I'm like, why am I riding this other road bike? Mm. It doesn't make me want to ride it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, you can take it to the extreme. Like, and that bike might be great for somebody who's 250 pounds, right? Right. But right. Me is right. a 190 or whatever. Not so great. I mean, maybe great for going up, but not for going down, not for the dirt roads. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that tubing choice can make quite a big difference yeah. for sure. And we would have obviously skew to the other end for a smaller rider. Like we would size down the tubes as well mm-hmm. and use maybe even thinner seat stays type of thing. Yeah. So that's a great point. It's, it's almost like um, for a long time, carbon bikes were stiffer, stiffer, stiffer. I mean, in the last 15 years, every bearing on the bike has gotten bigger with exception of the pedal bearings because we don't want to have some increased stack height, even though Shimano came up with a design that circumvents that yeah. in 1984 or whenever Durius X came out yeah. a million billion years ago. But anyway, every other bearing has gotten bigger. All the bottom brackets and tubes have gotten bigger. Headsets have gotten bigger. Fork, um, sure. Fork parts have gotten bigger. Right. So everything's stiffer, right? But then then they took license to take more material away. So it almost makes you wonder, there was probably a period when the average road bike was probably a lot stiffer than it needed to be. Right around probably 2013, 2014, I was on the Horizon Organic team. We were sponsored by Scott and we were riding mm-hmm. Scott foils and those things were just brutal on dirt roads. Yeah. And they improved the ride of those a lot, right? But it makes you wonder if the hyperlight, you know, the Athoses and those types of frames now are maybe bringing the pendulum back towards better riding only because they're preposterously light. Yeah, there's like a very direct correlation probably there as as you try to drop weight at some point you are going to get more compliant frames. Right. I'm not a carbon expert, so I wouldn't necessarily speak to it 100%, but um I can think of other brands like Argonaut is another yeah. one that comes to mind. Ben, known him for a while and um his kind of intent with his original designs were to emulate what a steel tube felt like. Mm-hmm. Um and they were very light bikes mm-hmm. because of that as well, so uh, maybe podcast with them too. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I think that that's, there's something to that. Um, there's all in my mind, there's always just, there, there's going to be some type of give and take, yeah. right? Even, even in a metal bike, like where, as if you want a really, really light bike where you would achieve that is decreasing tube sizes and butted tubes. It's going to be more compliant because mm-hmm. of, of that choice. Yeah. Um, alternatively, like my crit spec bike, you know, because I wanted something really stiff, I, I gave up some comfort to get there. Yep. Yep. Um, and some handling. And some handling, yeah. which wasn't something I totally expected, mm. uh, but it definitely, definitely happened. So that's cool. Look, though, I'm looking forward to getting off that bike. When you have those experiences, that fuels your knowledge to build bikes for customers. And when they come to you and they're like, I want the stiffest thing possible. Sure. You can yeah. have a conversation with them and say, 
and also and also like reiterates that you know you come up with a design that you really like and there is a little bit of pressure to always do a new thing or try something else and sneak it let it sneak into your product line but yeah but no like no this is this is good it's been good since we did it day one and it's still good now and there's really not much need to change whatever is the 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 mix of tubing and geo to make that frame what it is so what do you think about all the the 3d printed type stuff that's coming out and oh yeah that's funny i was just having a conversation um with uh one of our machinists paragon in california yep uh, before i came over um and talking with the silica guys about printing and um recently been to some trade shows like bespoke in in london and <clears throat> seeing what people are doing um what do i think about 3d printing it's very interesting um it, it seems to be taking the best of what you can do with like a carbon style production where <laughs> the limits there's not as much limit to what you can design mm -hmm. and you can print it and it pops out of a printer and you have to do a few things to it but then boom it's yeah. it's on um i think the biggest questions that i have around it is what is it solving mm. right like what is it creating that we need what is it creating that we need um and is it giving something to the end consumer that is of value right right and i think that's like a, a good measure by which we always add or don't add to our product line and just asking those honest questions. Mm -hmm. um, I think a big hang up right now too, is just the cost of it. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it might be at a place where a smaller company that doesn't have a price sensitive product or can absorb that cost is going to do it. Um, put some 3d printed pieces on their bikes in order to have that new technology as it is. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, the, the printing is technology for sure. I'm not sure the piece on the bike, should be seen as technology right right like it's if you're accomplishing the same thing without it what is what I mean, technology is yeah. actually being added and yeah. so i mean i i'm sure there's some some cases where it is adding technology that may not be pertinent to the mosaic line i don't know mm -hmm. um so that's the conversation that we're internally having definitely feeling pressure from all the brands doing it mm -hmm. asking the questions is this making us more productive as a company because that's yeah. the bottom line of yeah if it adds a hundred bucks to every frame you do and you do a few hundred frames, well, that's probably not worth it. Right. And right. you can't just raise your cost another 500 bucks to yeah. put some to piece put that some gizmo on there. Gizmo on there. Um, I think kind of the history for us, the brief history of it would be, we started seeing that stuff pop up as yokes. Well, that right. Was, Where it's like, it's yeah. brands are using it to create a yoke that creates chain yoke, ring so. clearance and maybe you some more tire clearance between tire and chain room clearance, right? Somebody wants yeah. a two by and they yeah. also want a capacity to have a 45. Right. And then all of a sudden you run out of real estate for the chain stay. And so then Correct. before yokes and 3d printing, people are doing dropped stays or elevated stays, which does all kinds of weird things to the longevity of the rear triangle and the, and the, the stays. Yeah. It, the it triangle, may, right? Yeah. And, and we, Potentially. Um, yeah. So that has happened. Like yokes have happened. Yeah. Asymmetric chain stays have happened. Um, we haven't done any of that. Right. And we haven't seen the need to put okay. a yoke on. Um, it probably does increase production. Like I'm sure if you can just chop a chain stay at 90 and chop it on 90 and weld it on, like that's much faster. Yeah. So, you know, there's some back end cost of goods stuff that you can look at. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that at some point you're doing enough of them that that does make sense, mm. but I don't think we're quite there yet. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but like, you know, our all road bike still fits road to buy yeah. standard crank for road chain line yeah. um, with ample clearance. And it's been the same now since we started making it 2015, 16. Um, we do our, our, our gravel model now, our gravel four five model. We do sell it as a gravel chain line bike only. Meaning a one by meaning or it, it or a gravel two by two by that's got yeah, that a has a, a wider chain yeah okay um right. but that's not to say if you don't know the special menu and you ask <laughs> for us to dimple it uh, we will do that and it will fit a road crank as well yeah, yeah. so there is is a little bit of that would would a yoke solve that problem for us potentially mm. um would replacing our dropout our three axle dropout right now with the 3d printed dropout do anything potentially yeah, maybe it like gives a better seat stay angle. Mm. Um, maybe it's got the flat mount already on there and you don't have to do any machining or cutting or welding. Mm. Um, and it's just a better spec and it's more plug and play. Um, maybe it might, but I would say that, you know, we are fabricators, we are welders, we love TIG welding. Um, we've really enjoyed the design that we do on our flat mount chain stays. Um, and so we might just stick with it because of that mm -hmm. in and of itself. Like, yes, it's 3D printing. At some point, the price will come down and we'll be able to use it more productively. Um, but maybe we'll just keep doing it our way because it's cool and we like it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's like, there's nothing wrong with that either. Yeah. But And you guys currently have what you could describe, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's basically a breezer style dropout, right? 100%. Yeah. It's a breezer style dropout. The, the flat mount bosses get cut out and welded into the chainstay. Yeah. To me, that dropout, I mean, I'm not an engineer, but looking at it, it just seems like it makes a shit ton of sense. I've always thought those dropouts make a lot of sense. But yeah, it's a great platform for yeah. like a nice solid rear end. You can use a lot of different tube diameters on it. Right. Um, it doesn't have a lot of points of like flexion, mm -hmm. like a flat plated style dropout exactly. would have. Yep. Um, I think that's probably part of the secret sauce to it, honestly, yeah. especially for our bikes that tend to be a little more snappy, a little more oversized, a little stiffer in the tie. Mm -hmm. World, um, so yeah, I, I, I the question it's a question mark for us still. I don't I don't think it's going to creep into the mosaic line immediately. Okay, we'll do it. We'll make smart decisions around it and continue to have good conversations and and keep pay attention. It's like what what else is out there and yeah, like what effect it's having. It seems like right now it it's an easy attention grabber. It's a headline grabber. And I don't mean that in a, in a negative way. Like yeah. shots fired. Aaron Barjek says, yeah. 3D printing <laughs> right. is, is an attention grabber and nothing more. Totally. No. Uh, but it is. It is. I mean, yeah. but that's what the bike world is. Part bike of world is world about right? gizmos and, yeah. and cool stuff. Yeah. And it's fun to be a nerd that nerds out on that kind of stuff and appreciates it. And Totally. Um, yeah. I'm sure we have pieces like that in our finished work and other machine parts that do the same thing. What do you think about... Sometimes manufacturers occasionally do mixed frames with carbon tubes. Is that also kind of more, is that like just straight up a party trick or is it actually improve the ride quality? I've never ridden a bike like that. Yeah. Or do you? Um, I have actually ridden a bike like that. Um, we made them at my time at Dean. I mean, we made a bunch of carbon tubed tie bikes. Oh, and that's right. Dean did yeah, used to have a couple yeah, of like I that. can't remember the name of it. The model. Yeah. Uh, it was it very laborious. <laughs> it was like building three frames because <laughs> you'd have to like build a frame and then the cut all these little cuts it. out. I mean, nowadays you could do it more easily with like a laser cutter. Yeah. And then make sure all the carbon tubes fit and then glue it together and then like yep. hold them straight. And, yep. Um, <laughs> we've been working on some things. We, I don't think in my mind, 
uh, like the tie does so much of the work of making a tie bike feel great. Mm -hmm. So if you want to maintain that feel, like you probably need a lot of tie on the bike. Um, that's not to say that like a carbon seat tube or seat mast might be uh, a very functional component of like the layout that you could do in a seat mast. You might have different seat masts for your road bike versus your gravel bike, right? right? Because right. you could do the top portion of it more compliant. Yep. Um, in the same way that you might have, you might want a 27 two seat posts on a bike versus a 30.9, just because you know it's going to be more flexy. Yeah. Right. Same thing. Yeah. So you know that could be really cool. Mm -hmm. um, could you do that out of tie as well, potentially? Um, there's some cool things you can do with carbon though, in terms of shape mm. and in terms of topper, we do a tie topper right now. That's incredibly labor laborious to make. And that's probably why we don't do a lot of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, we're working on some things, um, and never say never, right? Like yeah. try things out before you just throw it out there in the world. Um, but I don't think you're going to see a carbon bike from mosaic anytime soon. It's certainly not a full carbon bike. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And Makes sense. We're doing really well right now with our just tie line. So yeah. there's really no reason yeah. to push that boundary yet. Okay. And then then continue to move forward, maybe from the back end of the bike to the front end. Yeah. What do you think about a, the fancy integrated stuff? Integrated stuff. Yeah. Uh, we get to so many questions on the integrated stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's been kind of an evolution of product for us. Um, really we haven't delved into it hundred percent because we have been unable to get the inventory to really pull the trigger on saying like, this is something we can offer. Um, I don't, I think that it's definitely something that we want to offer, but I think it would be a big disservice to our dealer base and our customer base mm -hmm. to throw something out there that nobody can buy, that nobody can buy. <laughs> Not, that, just, does uh, that never is that happen? The primary thing. Um, or you have to do that. It's a little bit of everything right now. NB20 are partners. Yeah. So probably use their, their cockpit. I would guess. Yeah. Yeah. It would probably be their fork and their headset and, um, I think they're still coming out of some inventory issues and the ability for us to get that stem yeah. um, or just the complete package in a quantity that, again, we can actually deliver to you or to somebody who wants to buy a mosaic is, is the hang up at this point. So right. aesthetically, it's rad, right? Like, how can you deny it? It's yeah. clean look. Um, that fork is fun, gives a little more clearance, allows you to do some stuff that you wouldn't be able to do on a road bike otherwise. Okay. In terms of tire size. Okay. Um, so the hope for us is probably some model, some incoming model updates throughout this year that as we get that things, just uh, those, those items, we can make them available. Um, but we, we hate to overpromise because it generally just gets us in a spot where mm -hmm. everybody feels hurt. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a fun place to be. Yeah. So, um, we'll do it and thinking about some of our own designs and own product around that in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, it's just like another constraint, like in, in, if aesthetically, if that's who you're after, boom, it's for you hundred mm -hmm. percent. If you're packing your bike up a lot and traveling, it's probably not for you. Yes. Right. Yeah. Or if you're constantly changing something on your bike and doing a lot of work on your bike, probably not for you. Mm -hmm. Right. But if your bike goes together and you don't touch it mm. and you really like it, yeah, it's for you. I'll say one positive that could come out of this if more manufacturers on the bespoke end of things start working with integrated mm -hmm. is right now for me as a bike fitter it's a nightmare when people come to me and they're like hey i'm buying a new whatever such and such road bike with an integrated barn stem what size do i need yeah I'm like, and you're uh, like uh <laughs> okay so 
now I'm on the hook for like a thousand dollar decision, right? Because I'm telling this person what stem bar to, come to buy. And some manufacturers are better about swapping after the customer mm-hmm. swapped the bike than others without naming names or whatever. But uh, it makes me, you know, and then if, if I've seen the client on their bike and I have detailed notes, I can often figure that out. Yeah, you're basically like looking at handlebar stack and reach and saying, yep. like, this is the combination of spacers and stem yep. length that we need to get you to where you're going. That I predict you will need. Yeah. Right. However, <laughs> and so many of them are integrated to the point where you can't even, like once you chop it, that's it. There's no up or down. It's just a mess. Right. So, and, and with integrated cables, then of course you're talking about hoses cut to length. So you're talking three to five hours of labor plus a few hundred dollars right. in for making a change to make a change right so if the client comes with a bike built and it's wrong then i have to give them this really bad news like oh we need your bars to be 15 mils higher yeah not only do you need a different stem you might you actually need, need a yep. whole new fork and you might need to like replace in your entire hose lines yep. and Most bars and olives and yep. re-bleed and three hours of labor uh, at least and a month worth of shipping all and, this crap. and a mechanic that probably doesn't want to work with you anymore <laughs> Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, that's there for sure. Uh, it's, you know, but again, like if you're willing to go through that mm-hmm. to have that aesthetic that you were looking for, um, I mean, we all make crazy decisions in the bike world about our aesthetic, right? <laughs> like, I mean, come on. <laughs> um, yeah. Some much more strange and odd than I mean, an internal front end. Um, but it's probably I, worth it, right? Like, But when I work with you guys and we draw yeah. the, the frame, the entire thing, start to finish, and we know. Yeah, they're, they're on a one, whatever, one ten. Yeah, like you should be able to just basically set the saddle height, setback, yeah. and the right amount of spacers, and it should be dialed within Stop. within a millimeter. Yes, um, and I think that would be how it should work. Yeah, so go get a custom geometry mosaic when you work with experts. Integrated in, front end when yeah. it is ready <laughs> for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's your gig. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, and then don't take it apart. And then don't ever take it apart. You probably should just buy another one for me when it is ready. <laughs> if you need a stem swap, you just need a whole new bike. There are bike cases now that <laughs> allow you to just put the bike in with the handlebars on, right? Oh yeah, you just the turn to the side or whatever. Or whatever um, and that's kind of a lot away. easier with the flight fees kind of going away to some extent, it's still there. Well, but I'm kind of, it seems like when COVID dropped, all the airlines almost died. And now they don't even care if you fly with a bike, is my experience yeah. the last few times. Like, uh, yeah, I just bike, flew whatever. to London with two bikes. And they're like, they don't care. piece of luggage. Right. They're just like, let's do it. But I'm wondering um, if the dial's going to slowly drop back to. Oh, yeah. They'll be like, they'll look at their P&L and they're like, how come we're not making that extra couple million bucks off of yep. sporting good fees? Mm-hmm. We better put that back in place. Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah, I mean. If you don't travel a lot, then it's not a big deal. Right. Or, you know, N plus one, a lot of us have more than one bike and take the one that take the one that travels well. Yeah. Um, or not. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm, I'm in favor of it. You know, I like it. Okay. It's just a slow moving evolution of getting the right products in place. And mm. hopefully in the coming years, it'll be an option across the board too. Mm. Like not just in the road category, but all road and gravel. I will say I'm not a fan of the hydraulic systems that route the cables through the headset bearings such that you have to just, it's the same problem with integrated DI2 cables where in order to get the new cable installed, you have to take out the bottom bracket. Right. It's like, yep. There, and just like anything is a new wow product. There's a point when everybody makes it all. And then two years later, they're like, there's a way better way to do this. Yeah, Why totally. don't we do this? To begin yeah. With? Like when SRAM comes out with Axis yeah. and you're like, oh, that 
actually does just go better. It solves a lot of problems. Yeah, it yeah. does. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, I think there's a lot of people working on this this issue right now. A yeah. lot of brands yeah. uh, that are being pressured to just like get it all on the inside, mm-hmm. put it all on the inside of the frame, hide it. And so you'll probably see a lot of things come out this year, I imagine. Cool. I'm banking on it. I hope yeah. I'm yeah. Make my life easier. Yeah. Because <laughs> people want it, right? Like yeah. it's cool. Yeah. I want one. It is cool. It looks, it just is. Then you put it next to your full suspension mountain bike that's got cables running everywhere. It's like, I mean, mountain bikes are so much fun. Yeah. And all the gizmos are fun, but they're not aesthetically yeah, tiny bikes. Until you go to work on it and then you're like, okay. <laughs> like my, I have one bike that always works. Yeah. Right. It's a caliper brake, mechanical, shifting, externally routed road bike. Exactly. I don't touch it for a yeah. year and a half and I pull it out. You just pump up the tires and go. Yeah, around. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Tubes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's ready to go. Yeah. Working 100% of the time. Yeah. Um, something to that. Agreed. Bicycles are fundamentally very simple machines, but we've done our best to make them very complicated in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways. Yeah. In some ways not. I think yeah. it's, it's you know, it's as a, as a frame designer, it's as a professional, like it's, that's our job is to like help people sift through that and make, mm-hmm. make that appropriate choice mm-hmm. where they're at. Yeah. On the spectrum. What do you think about... The, so on mountain bikes, we've seen this huge evolution of longer top tube, shorter stem, mm-hmm. and that was a big thing, right? Yeah. Came across a video a few weeks ago, a buddy of mine sent it to me of these like really old school mountain bike people. Just, it was like guys going down a hill in some race before anybody knew how to handle a mountain bike. And they were all in like 140 stems with tires that had to be pumped like 55 or 60 PSI. And they were just, rider after rider was just eating it, just catastrophic <laughs> yard right. sales. And you were like, ow. But, <clears throat> So it seems like some of that geometry is now trickling over to gravel bikes and we're getting these longer top tubes, shorter stems. And that makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons, but how, I mean, where do you feel about this? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a fun question. Um, one that we, we, and I have played with pretty extensively over the last couple of years. Um, I'll just cite some examples of it too. Um, to speak to the mountain bike thing to start off with, like we just launched our MT2 this September. Um, and that was a fun experience for me. Um, it's funny at Mosaic, we've never been known as a mountain bike brand, but everybody in our shop rides mountain bikes mm. a lot. Um, so we kind of had this like really big misalignment for mm-hmm. us of just not producing them because they we were only doing a few of them. So it didn't really make sense. And um, big push last year to just get the design together, figure out what that was gonna be like and talk about things like the head angle and like, mm-hmm maybe not go with the trend because i don't think we went with the trend like we made a hardtail that's not incredibly incredibly slacked out mm-hmm. um i think we ended up like on a 67 head angle okay which it's pretty slacked out it's pretty slacked, it's pretty slacked, slacked by out old school standards by right? old school standards absolutely like yeah. from where we were coming at you know 15 years ago 69 would have been like whoa yeah <laughs> look most mountain bikes were still 70 71 yeah. right right and, yeah. and so like we would never think of yeah. 71 like what we made is considered a cross country mountain bike. Yeah. Right. Um, And I've been riding, Mark rides a ton of mountain bikes. I ride a ton of mountain bikes. We're on full suspension bikes. We don't specifically just ride mosaics. We have all these other brands Mm -hmm. that we ride on the full suspension side as well. And um, I kind of expected this thing to be more like what you just described. Like it's a hardtail. 
I get on it. I like it, but maybe my full suspension is still my number one bike mm -hmm. and it's efficient and I'll ride it in Ned and I'll, I'll do some of the trails around here, but maybe it won't be on our bike. I've had the exact opposite experience with that. Like, mm -hmm. um, I think maybe partially just due to the geo partially due to the, the tire size has been a help too. Um, I've been just blown away at how capable this hardtail has been. Mm -hmm. um, now I'm also riding it in Netherland, Colorado, tons of tight, twisty trails, not a ton of like super fast, 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 fast droppy stuff that yep. might require something, you know, like we were just in Moab. Like, I don't think I really want to ride my hardtail there right. on some of that stuff. Right. Um, I'd probably give it a go, but I've been to Moab on a hardtail. Yeah. I mean, it, it wouldn't be as fun. It just, just wouldn't. Not. Right. Like, yeah. so there's, there is the right tool for the jobs in, yeah. in some cases, but, um, like just getting that, the geo dialed, like still low BB a little bit slacker slack head angle but not like crazy enduro hardtail thing right mm -hmm. like you see these hardtails that are like super steep seat angles and super slack and you look yeah. at them they just look weird yeah i'm sure they're fun yeah um but we kind of like stuck to what we thought that bike should do mm -hmm. with like a 120 travel fork and a big tire and just be this like all-around capable thing mm -hmm. um it was rad so the other example would be our adventure bike that we launched the year prior. So last, last summer. Mm -hmm. And the concept of the adventure bike is a fat, fat tire gravel bike. So fat as in it fits a 2.2, 2.25. Mm -hmm. um, it probably has like a 70 degree head angle, mm -hmm. I'd say 70, 71. And the stock geo that we came up for that was definitely a longer top tube and a shorter a tube. The fun thing that I did is I put a flat bar on mine um, and this is where that whole like long top tube thing really, I think starts to come into play. Um, another bike that I've really just not ridden because I just did not enjoy it as much as I thought I would, mm. um, because of the flat bars, honestly, like it just makes it so fast handling. Mm. Um, and even, even under weight, like we, you know, you go bike packing, you put some bags in the front, some bags in the back frame bag, all the bags, back the bags. Um, and it probably is not creating enough stability. So if I were to do that bike again, especially in a flat bar, I'd probably make it even longer. Okay. Um, or just put a drop bar on it. Because mm -hmm. that drop bar immediately just gives you more stability. Just yeah. with the, the steering, just- it just, just be able to drop down lower in the drops or- uh, It's not so much that, it's just that your hand placement is further in front of the bar, which yeah. just makes that turning radius yeah. slower. Okay. Um, and just that alone mm. um, kind of makes that bike feel better, I think. But, you know, in terms of design constraints, like if you're weighting this bike down, you would want it to have a longer wheelbase. You would want the turning radius to be longer so that as you're going faster on it, it's not twitchy. Mm. Like it's, yeah, it's distributing the weight more evenly. Yeah. Um, and so that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Now it also makes a lot of sense that you might not want that on a gravel bike, mm -hmm. like a true gravel bike, not like a super big tire gravel bike. Um, my experience with that adventure bike is that it is a great adventure gravel bike. You take it out on trail, which you want to, cause you're like, well, this thing has a 2.2 tire. Let's go uh -huh. ride on single track. Yeah. And it's just not that fun. Cause it's a little sluggish or uh, it's too quick. Right? Still too quick. Still too quick. Right. Oh, cause okay, it's okay. not a mountain bike. Right. It's absolutely not a mountain bike, okay. like a mountain bike top tube would be centimeters longer. Okay. 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 Gotcha. Like yeah. many centimeters yeah. longer, um, longer chainstay, mm -hmm. longer, even longer wheelbase, super slacker head angle comparatively. Yeah. yeah. 
And so, you know, that bike feel, feels like a pretty specific niche for us in that it is great for a big tire gravel bike. Mm. But if you are more on the mountain bike side of bike packing, you're probably going to go for the hardtail still. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Where if you're, you know, looking to do a bunch of fire road stuff, put a bunch of bags, maybe some, some light overnight type bike packing, mm-hmm. that adventure GT two X is like rad That's for that long. stuff. Yeah. It's super fun and it can still be ridden. You could still slap a 45 tire on a 42 and it would be more of just a traditional gravel bike. Right. right. So it can be pretty darn versatile if you're not really into riding trail and you're not really on the road side of things or racing cycle crossing and stuff like that bike would be very, very versatile mm-hmm. for somebody. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 Sort of. Yeah. So, okay. I mean, and I guess you could say like, if you're getting a custom geometry mosaic, like you could design your gravel bike with a longer top tube and a shorter stem. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my feedback would be, well, it's going to slow it down. If that's something that you're looking for in a bike. Right. Great. If it's not like, don't do it. Yeah. Like, Geo is pretty dialed. Yeah. Right. Like we've been making bikes for really collectively, not just mosaic. Mm-hmm. Um, we've all been making and riding bikes for a really long time. And the the kind of range of geometry within every segment, like, yeah, you can play with it a little bit, but it's kind of pretty good, right? Yeah. Yeah. Know. Somebody's gonna Sometimes people catch me on that, deal, I, I mean, I was looking over some geo the other day, actually it was for a client that we just placed an order with you. And we were comparing mm-hmm. Different geometries, and and Mark produced a frame drawing, and then we went back, and he said, "Okay, I want to understand how this rides." Mm-hmm. And this is a gravel bike, yep. but what we used, the only bike I've seen him on at that point was his road bike. It was a BMC. And so we looked at it, we looked at the head angle, and the trail, and then I I looked at it, and I was like, "Wow, the trail for this BMC is a bit out of the normal range, right?" Yeah. My understanding and my research is that the the commonly accepted range for road and gravel is fifty eight to sixty two for trail, maybe sixty three. Tell me if you agree, disagree. Uh, I, I imagine it kind of depends on your school of thought, you know, okay. like a, you know, like the old Strata system would have said like 63 is just the ideal no matter what. Yeah. Right. right. And then you look at brands that are making road bikes, um, all the way down to like 51 and so they're was, like, that's the way to go. That was and, BMC. It was right. really low. Yeah. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Obviously a proven brand or like, a you know, even what would be a traditional Randon a bike. Mm-hmm. Did I pronounce that right? Sorry for all the randonnayers out there. Randonnay. Right? If I mispronounce that, but like they have really, really, really short trails, I believe. Yeah. Right. Uh, really long rake forks that produce a short trail mm-hmm. and you get up to speed and people swear that like, that's the way to go because once you're up to speed, it's, it's super, super solid. Yeah. That might also be in conjunction with a really long wheelbase. I mean, that right? brings up a great point, which is when people ask, they ask me about one aspect of geometry, like, how's the half a degree steeper shallower head tube angle going to affect yeah, my handling. Well, yeah. on its own, it'll have some effect, but the reality is we can influence the handling of a bike by pulling on many different factors. It's like a yeah. spider web. You can it's change. Back, you're back to the Venn diagram, right? Like change what's, length, what's the thing drop. that you really want? Right. And right. how do you get there? What are you trying to accomplish? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. And I think a more traditional thought would be as, um, you go through the size run, of, of a particular model, let's say from small to large, yep. typically the smaller bikes would have longer trails because they have shorter wheelbases, right? And you might even have a different rake fork on the really, really small models to increase that front center for toe overlap. Right. And then as you get to the larger bikes, 
and the wheelbase starts going longer and longer because of top tube length, you're decreasing the trail to maybe make it feel snappier. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of like, personally, I kind of land somewhere in between, like, you know, if, if you know, like this route, like if a 63 trail is good for a small bike, what, why is it not good for, for, for a large, large bike? bike? I feel the same way about seat angle. Yeah. As a bike, obviously as the seat gets farther away from the bottom bracket, mm-hmm. if the seat angle is the same, then you get more saddle offset behind the BB, but most manufacturers change seat angle as the frame size gets larger. Why? I don't know why the reason for that would be other than tire clearance in the rear. Yeah. Um, I think you'll see it. I would think about it the other way around. I would say as you get smaller, the seat angle increases. Gets steeper. Gets steeper yeah. to accommodate. Cause usually you switch to like a 50 trail fork so you can slack the head angle out Yeah. Um, for toe overlap, but then right. you kind of have to adjust the, the, the saddle. But if, but I'm okay. Assuming for a moment that most riders have roughly the same proportion of femur to tibia and we want roughly the same range of saddle yeah. offset, which not everyone would agree with, especially now everybody's slamming their saddles forward. We're getting nerdy. I like it. Get me started on that. But, yeah. um, but in theory, you know, a shorter rider would need less saddle offset and that shorter saddle height would accommodate that with the same 73 seat angle or whatever. So why? it would be close. Yeah, I, right. it would, it would be close. I think that it will. Typically, you do see just a slightly steeper seat angle. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it wouldn't be like TT bike drastic. Right. But it might be like 735 or 74 instead right. of. Or you'd be accommodating, like myself, like I have a pretty steep seat angle on all my bikes, mostly because like I'm a long time IT uh-huh. man patient and I just need like a bigger hip angle. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, for whatever reason, also as a very tall person, have a pretty short setback. Mm-hmm. So I don't have setback seat posts on any of my bikes. Right. I think it's like a 62 setback for 785 saddle height or something crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that would be, you know, again, it's, um, I tried a lot of different offsets, not offsets, rakes. Yeah. Um, not rakes. What are we talking about? Trails. 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 Yeah. On, yeah. on road More specific, offset. I yeah. think road is the place where you see it, where you will feel it the most. Okay. Right. Uh-huh. And me personally, I've kind of fallen more in like the higher mm-hmm. range, I, like 58 would be probably on the faster side of some of the bikes that I've done for myself. Somewhere around like 59, 60 has been pretty rad. Mm-hmm. Um, 61, 63 on a road bike starts to feel sluggish. Um, I've, I don't think I've actually ever ridden a bike with 51 trail. Yeah. Maybe I should. Yeah. Maybe I'd love it. <laughs> uh, I just, I do know that the bikes that I've made that have crept down on that scale have always felt quicker. Mm-hmm. Now you can really nerd on this too and be like, well, if you're making a road bike around a certain trail and putting all these different tire sizes on it, you're also changing the trail. You're changing the trail. Um, yeah. I think that there's probably, I think the trail is yes, a constraint in bicycle design that's going to make an impact on the handling. Yeah. Um, I would say the two other biggest ones, probably the biggest one is going to be center of gravity so bottom bracket height bottom bracket height 100 yeah. percent. yeah um you can you can make a bike with a low bb and that alone will probably over overweigh some of the other mm. constraints interesting then followed by wheelbase wheelbase yeah. and and a factor of that is of course chain state length yeah chain state length um head angle um the i think the experience that like the example that we see a lot is with our all-road bike yeah that people come off their road bike and get an all road bike and the mentality around the all road bike would be like, wow, this bike is just 
on paper, it's just a slower bike, uh-huh. right? It's just a slower bike. Like it's got a slacker head angle. And of course this is road oriented gravel, so it's still not slack. I can't actually remember off the top of my head what we put them at. Mm-hmm. Longer chainstay, just because you're accommodating a bigger tire. Mm-hmm. Um, low bottom bracket, probably a lower bottom bracket drop because you're putting on a, a larger tire, which is like bringing the frame up off yep. the ground a little bit more. Yep. So, you know, keep that bottom bracket as low as you can. And on paper, you look at that compared to a road bike, you're like, this is a slow handling bike. Right. And then you get on it and you start ripping descents on it. And you're like, what? Why, Why am I so going fast? faster? Yeah. yeah. Why am I going so much faster? Mm-hmm. And you're just, um, there's something to stability. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. what I would say. So like, I would probably err as a frame designer on the side of stability. So that's, I'm glad you made that point. I frequently have this discussion around clients who, I think the perception is that people see either slow handling, what they perceive to be slower handling bikes as like this giant, like a sprinter van. And they compare that to like a Porsche. Yeah. And most riders yeah. are like, well, pick one or the other. Yeah. And it's like, those are way on either end of the extreme. They're way on either end like of the extreme. It's not but, apples to apples. Right. It's not at all. And I think that most people tend to look at that equation and go, oh, well, hands down, I'm a Porsche because I'm not driving a sprinter. It's like process of elimination. So the, the paradigm they have in their head is maybe not quite accurate, but also in my experience, when someone is on the edge of handling a bike, like remember the year that if you watched um, Milan San Remo, the year that the guy crashed in front of Sagan with like, I don't know, it was maybe 600 meters right after they came off the descent. And he did this maneuver that was like somebody, there was a YouTube video someone did and they analyzed it. And his reaction speed was like three times faster than the average, you know, person who tries to do whatever fast, like incredible reaction speed. This guy dumps it right in front of him and he, barely keeps the bike up, like twitches and does it. Now Sagan is the 0.1 of 0.1 of 0.1. And I think people imagine that that if they have that fast handling bike, that that's the shit they're gonna get themselves out of. And I think that almost never turns out to be the case. If you have a bike that handles that quickly, most people, probably myself included, will just over panic and oh shit. And that bike handles so fast that you just end up turning the wheel way faster than you should. Yeah. And you end up on the ground anyway. Well, I mean, on, on, on the bell curve, you know, Sagan is barely even on it. He's so far off to exactly. the, the, you know, the edges of right stream on that. Right. And most of us live in the middle section of the bell curve. The normal. And, uh, and, 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 and we're also not, you know, I've been riding a bike for a long time. I'm pretty trained, but I'm not professional level trained. Like I'm not mm-hmm. a freak of nature with incredible, incredible, incredible balance and all these other things. Um, I'm just kind of like, you know, normal bike rider that's mm-hmm. done a lot and gained a lot of skill around it. Um, and so you could say that, you know, maybe I'm even, maybe we're, both of us are on close to the end of that extreme too, because of how long we've been how doing long riding bikes and many and bike, practicing bikes we've been riding. Right, exactly. Yeah. And uh, the majority of people probably need something that's more stable and would probably enjoy it more. And I think, well, that's what I was getting at is when we have that moment of like, something goes wrong, whatever it is, like a car cuts out in front of you or there's a deer yeah. in the road, which happens all the time here. I've, um, I've or had those. Yeah. you come around a corner and suddenly there's a patch of sand and you're like, whoa, course correction, right? And you're right. really hauling ass. Like during any of those moments, or there's a hole in the middle of the line of the corner and you've got to adjust for it one way or mm-hmm. the other. Like generally speaking, a more stable bike is going to probably in most instances, uh, my instinct is it'll help you stay upright more than having a bike that's too twitchy. Yeah, Cause if it's twitchy, it's just gonna help you overreact is what you're saying. Exactly. Essentially. That's my, that's my feeling on yeah. it. And so when, and there's a really old school belief about frames, which is 
smaller frame. If you're in between frame size, you go smaller because it's lighter and stiffer, yeah, which is total terrible garbage. No, I, I think we we've right. had we've had enough of that where we put like retired racers or racers on our all road bike yeah. and they can't figure out why they're going so fast on it. Yeah. And it's like, well, it's one, it's fit. It's your size. Like you're six foot tall and you don't need to be riding a 54. Like <laughs> right. you should be riding maybe at least a 58, if not yeah. 60. Yeah. Um, and, and there's just something to that, you know, there's, there's good design for what intended use. And there's a lot to stability. There's a lot to wheelbase. There's a lot to center of gravity yep. um, and center of gravity. You know, we can even go down that rabbit hole even more, not just in terms of low or high, but front to back. Yes. Right. Like if you're, if you're riding a 130, 140 stem, like, mm -hmm. and your hands are hurting and you're like, why, am, why is my, or you have all this drop and you're like, why are my hands hurting? Mm -hmm. Well, you, you have like 80% of your weight on your front wheel or something crazy. Yep. It might yeah. be extreme. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. um, same idea, like front to back weight is just as important for handling. Absolutely. As is, you know, yeah. top to bottom. Yeah. Weight. Um, yeah. So like if you're doing all these things are really easy to design around when you're doing a mm -hmm. custom geo bike, mm -hmm. right? Because you, you're looking at that. You're like, you have the ability to bump out the top tube instead of bumping out the stem. Right. Right. Or right. making sure that the constraint of your saddle setback is optimized before you do the reach of the whole thing. Yes. Um, more difficult when you're pulling something off the shelf, not impossible. Again, like most of mm -hmm. us are in the middle of the bell curve. So we probably do fit on something. Most of the time. Most, most people do fit on something stock. And I'm not scared to say that. Like as somebody yeah. makes mostly made to order custom bikes, like mm -hmm. again, the Venn diagram, it's a part of yeah. the process, right? Yeah. It's not the whole thing. Um, it could be for some riders, but it's not. Yeah. For correct. most people, it's not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, but when you're doing a custom geo, you can make those little tweaks, which is quite fun. So in 2014, I worked for the uh, Slipstream team, which at the time was Garmin Sharp. That was their iteration. And they gave me a, a Cervelo S5. And Cervelo that year made their head tubes really tall. The first generation yeah. S5s yeah, yeah. were like you really probably tall. Guess and, where this is going? <laughs> well, it was a great conversation because we, they presented the bike to the team that year at team camp. And they were like, we came up with this new super aero frame. It's amazingly aero. It's super aero. It's the most aero thing ever, aero, aero, aero. And they were like, cool. And they were like, oh, by the way, the head tubes are like 30 mils longer. And all the riders were like, how are we going to get our handlebars in the right shape? Yeah, they're like, well, we'll size down by two sizes. So three guys on the team that year of mm -hmm. exceptional height, Johan van Sumeren, David Miller, Ryder Hedgedal, all over 193 centimeters. They all rode 56s with slam stems and... 3T had to make special stems for them. Yeah. I still have one somewhere in my it's studio like here. 150 it's a 150 <laughs> 17 stem. Ah, that's great. Yeah. Classic. And those guys, of course, made it work. So when I got there, they gave me a 54 and I had the same problem because I ride a very long, low yeah. bike. And so I managed to go to the service course and, skate and talk to the mechanic into giving me one of the 140s. So I had a 140 by negative 17. Or maybe it's a 150. I don't know. I've got it in somewhere. It's a, it's a funny conundrum, right? Because like everybody on the team is talented enough that they can still maybe it, it didn't even matter right like they get on these bikes i mean and, and they're fearless right they're so fearless you gotta figure it out at that level someone else who is five you know nine and has the right size frame under them with the correct proportion of like what could have they stem to talk to yeah. right and then, what could they do in the sense uh, but then the other side of that conundrum is like that if, if those companies want to be commercially bringing that bike to market like it probably fits the consumer better than it better does. than it does the racer yeah. um yeah but you know 
as a UCI legal bike, it has to be available. So there's like right. the weird dynamic there where, you know, like the racers would actually be better served. Yes. Um, if they had something that actually fit them. And honestly, the consumer might even be better, better served if it was even more stack mm-hmm. um, or at least yeah, the, you know, the entire consumer base. So the riders challenged the Cervelo engineers at that meeting where they presented the bike to the team and they were like, you know, WTF, like, how are we going to ride this thing? And the Cervelo guy sat up there for like an hour and a half talking about how it's actually far more aero to ride with a 90 degree bend with your hands on the hoods than it is in the drops, which is aerodynamically probably true. Yeah. Nowadays is probably known. <laughs> right. Maybe not back then. Maybe not back then. But the guys were like, we, we can't, we ride, you know, things like Liège and Paris-Bay. Like we need to ride in the drops and we can't just ride around in the drops for nine hours with our bars too high. Like that makes the hoods unusably high for when we want a straight arm right. position. And they went back and forth for like an hour and a half. And finally, I think it was Johan who just was like, you guys are full of shit. This is total bullshit. And he just called him out. And finally, the guy was like, yeah, sorry. And he basically admitted that they made it yeah. for the, you know, yeah. golfing consumer who had a beer belly. Yeah. Uh, it was a great story. But and the guys rode the bikes and they won. And there's the nothing wrong out there if you have a beer belly. I, I totally meant that in the nicest people have beer belly way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm working towards mine <laughs> someday. <laughs> <laughs> at least in the winter i am <laughs> yeah yeah the off season let's do it Beer so it's a good story but um but i think you're right that it's interesting because the market does dictate how things are bought uh, and which dictates how things are made how they're engineered and conceived of and that doesn't always serve the elite athletes sometimes the the pros have to make do yeah but i think probably as, as a trend i think even more production oriented companies big companies have been making more and more products that are consumer driven, mm. even on the component side, whether it's frames that are more compliant or mm. more relaxed fit or components that are geared right, right? Yeah. Like gearing, yeah. gearing and disc brakes and um, it's cool. Like all of those have been consumer driven, mm. not race driven to some extent, mm-hmm. to a large extent. Like there's still some, question as to whether disc brakes belong in the pro peloton at least on road road cycling i don't know i, I think but, that one um, seems like it's died maybe finally yeah. but for me disc brakes are inarguably superior again from inarguably. a consumer standpoint yeah done deal of course it is i i mean you see the internet forums yeah. and people are, oh, God, I, I mean I still i still enjoy my caliber brake bike but it's yeah. you know i don't ride it that much and that would really be the determining factor like if i'm not reaching for it nine times out of ten yeah like, eh, what does that tell you? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's fun, but it's, yeah. it's like, especially for us here in Boulder, it's a novelty. Mm-hmm. It's other places in the world. Like it still makes sense. It hundred percent. If, if you're so not downplaying half an hour long descents, right. then, and you're just, you live in a flat place with yeah. 90 degree or you're doing descents that don't require the same. A lot of break. Yeah. A lot breaking, of breaking force. Yeah. Um, that are like super yeah. twisty or whatever, or you don't live in a place that has a ton of weather. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just not like dirty and dusty and yeah, you know, just, things like that but um it's it's cool to see the evolution of of other brands doing that and you know it's a custom it's a bespoke custom geometry manufacturer where i think we've been trying to accommodate that stuff all along yeah yeah have you guys built a lot of bikes with the uh, e car groups yet is that a thing that's taken off yeah we have uh i don't know probably taken off no more than any other okay. comparable campy group um, okay. We also don't like build up a ton of bikes in house, but yeah, certainly throughout our network, like mm-hmm. it's there. Um, mm. Interesting group. I think like probably one of the 
bigger updates that a brand like Campy has really ever done. Yeah. You know, yeah. and one by 13 speed, right? It's one by so, 13, which is yeah. the only other group I think that was on 13 before that was the rotor. They made a hydraulic group, which I have a couple guys that I've known. Really. Yeah, we did one of those with yeah. the, rotor, the rotor, yeah. rotor crew. I think their biggest miss there was maybe just not making their gravel chain line. Mm -hmm. Like if the crank had been a gravel chain line, yeah. I think you would see it being used more or seeing it used with an aftermarket gravel chain line crank. Yeah. Cause you could put it on a lot more bikes. Yeah. For us, it's been viewed maybe a little bit more in our all road category as like a great one by alternative for all road. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there's a lot of good alternatives for one by all road too. So. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking about, it, like we were talking about disc brakes and I don't know if you've seen the a car rotors, but they're, they have these rounded edges. Mm -hmm. You just put your finger right on it. It's like, don't why do that. Why are you everyone, doing that? I mean, you don't want to put your finger on a rotor because you want to get oil over it. But my point is, <laughs> you're not going to get sliced in half by it. Yeah. That's what I'm getting. Yeah. I'm just thinking about that really yeah. disc debate. Yeah. And yeah. I think their, their disc brake, oh, their calipers are like Magura, right? I think they are partnered with Magura, if yeah. I remember right. Yeah. yeah. So solid design. Yeah. Aesthetically pleasing. Yeah. And it's campy. Yeah. It's like if you're a campy nerd, yeah. you got to have it. Totally. Got it. You got set. It. If you have a campy tattoo on your calf. Yeah. Now you can get a campy disc brake tattoo <laughs> with the rotor. Yeah. <laughs> Just get it heated heat up. So, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't actually ridden it extensively, but heard a lot of good things about it. I've heard good things about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's been on a while now, so I should probably like, try it out. Check it out. Yeah. I got to say I'm pretty... I'm really, really happy with the Shimano 2x12 on my mosaic that you built me. I have a GT1. Mm -hmm. Doing an Ultegra group. It's Ultegra. Thank you, Nick. Yeah. Vegan. Shout, Shout out to Nick. Out Help me out with that. We're shouting out so many people. It's yeah. Cool. And you guys did the it's new cool. Prismatica paint job uh -huh. on my bike, which that's is right. astoundingly gorgeous. Really yeah. Cool. So, what do you, so now that that's our, you're our on and all road bike, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts about that bike in comparison to like road versus gravel? Um, I mean, to a certain degree, I think, you know, after, well, to loop back for a second to my experience of riding that S5 mm -hmm. um, with a 150s by negative 17 stem at the time, I put it on there and I looked at it and I went, this thing is going to handle like a shoebox. This is going to be terrible. But I rode it in Girona a lot that summer and I kept up with Ryder and David on the descents. Mm -hmm. It seemed fine. Like, so to a certain degree, someone who understands how a bike handles can adapt to a lot of crappy stuff you know, long, super long stems and super high attitude or whatever, whatever you have to, to figure out that theoretically on paper looks like it'll handle terribly. And then you go, okay, this actually works. Um, but that doesn't mean there aren't important and subtle differences between a lot of the frames that I've written. Mm -hmm. Right. And for me, the, the GT one just, it just feels like home. Like I got it in immediately and it's just point and shoot on, and I use it for a lot of, we have a lot of what I'll call our path gravel trails around mm -hmm. here, like the Coal Creek Trail. And so they're like cinder path trails that are sort of, they're trying to, they're, they really want to pave them all, but we don't have the money, I guess. So they just try to better. buff them out yeah. and make them like baby carriage compatible, which is a great gravel trail because they're kind of wavy and undulating and they oh, have yeah. a little unevenness. And then we get more rowdy. We have like that Eagle Trail and mm -hmm. I'll do the contour at the bottom of OHV. Mm -hmm. So that's like a rowdy mountain bike trail yeah. park that we have that is like, if you're a cross country guy, you can't go in that place alone because you might kill yourself because there are trails that just go straight off cliffs and huge rock drops and such. You have to know where you're going. Sweet. But I take the the gravel bike on the, the bottom contour and it just flows along the bottom of the mountain and whatever. And it's, it's fun and 
It's got some rowdy stuff. You heard it so. here first, folks. GT1. Yeah. Holy Pierce approved. Yes. Feels like home. Feels like home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it helps also that I know my numbers and, yeah. you know, my bike fitter told me how. Oh, to yeah. Bike. Yeah. Of course, so, we went back and forth on it a few bits so many times to yeah. make it yeah. get it dialed. So I would hope that that's what it feels like. That said, I'm going to ask you to paint this NBC post I have on my desk right here because right, that's I my... put a one belt on it because I couldn't uh-huh. find the NBs weren't available. I think NB, I mean, the bike industry got destroyed by um, supply chain problems, but NB got hit really hard, I think. Oh, yeah. It's taken them a while to, to come back. Yeah. Um, so if I, I was able to get a seat post final. Perfect. So we'll doctor it up. Cool. Make it look cool. Yeah. It's got a match. Got a match. You got. You can't be out there not matching. It's like now that I have the bike with the matching post, it's done. Everything else just. Is. I know your world has changed. <laughs> you will never again ride a bike without a matching seven two post. <laughs> bar none. One can one can hope. I'm sorry. I should apologize for that. <laughs> so yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, anything else we should tell our audience before we um, come up? visit Colby Pierce at Colby Pierce Fitting. He will nerd out with you yeah, on anything related to bikes and probably other things too. And then go to mosaiccycle.com mm-hmm. and check out the stuff. Yeah. And if you're ever in Boulder, come and visit us and you can see say all, hi. The, all the paints in person yeah. and Mark will walk you through the shop and show right. you everything works. And I've had a couple of clients do that just in the last few days. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're local, stop by. If you're out of town, yeah, come on by. Um, if you want to get out for a ride, that's a possibility too. Cool. That sounds cool. So I have, I got to read this to you. I got this text from my client this morning. Okay. You can tell Barcheck I was sold on the frame between the reputation for fabrication and your fitting, but on the fence about the value proposition until seeing the work there and talking to Mark. Very impressive stuff. Attention to detail. When was the last time someone showed off the paintwork in the down tube to bottom bracket area? I just figured everybody did that. <laughs> Apparently not. So, um, and this is a client who I actually used to run a frame business with. We uh-huh. built track frames for a little while. So we dorked out. We actually well, made thanks. three I appreciate the, the feedback. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Set a higher standard. Yeah. There you go. People, uh, people are sold on the experience when they go in and see how you, how you guys do it. So that's cool. That's great. That's great to hear because we work awfully hard to make it that way. So um, I'm I'm glad that it shines through. Yeah. Cool. Um, MosaicCycles.com. Check it out for the info. Yeah. What's your own website? Oh, ColbyPierce.com. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just how it works is people come in and we talk about options and I look at them on their existing bike and we discuss what their goals in the sport are and we discuss all the bits we nerd out on finish work and components and all those things and help you select that. And then you put a pause down, a deposit down. And right now you guys are about 12 weeks for a bear frame. Uh, we are, our lead time's way down now. We've, you know, just this summer probably caught up from COVID as well. Okay. And so, um, our goal is to get our stuff back down to hopefully an eight week turnaround for next year. Nice. Um, we are probably cruising a little bit quicker than that right now. Oh, okay. Um, and if you do fit on a more standard size bike, we have our batch built GT245s and MT2s mm-hmm. hanging around, ready to go. And those have been more of like a two to three week thing, depending on what your finished work is. Yeah. So that's fun too. Yeah. Cool. And we'll probably have some more of that next year in all road and RT okay. road disc as well. 
Okay. So yeah, well, I mean, it's worth the wait, even if even if it is twelve weeks. Yeah. That's pretty quick yeah. to get something made to order that you're going to have for the next decade at least or more. It's really quick. Yeah. It's really outstandingly quick. Yeah. And it's um, if it's something you're thinking about, now's a great time to be thinking about it because it just starts snowing here. That means in like four or five, six months, we'll be back at it on the road. Mm-hmm. And what better time to get a bike made for you and wait for it when it's crappy out. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Plan ahead a little bit or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, components are coming back in stock. So I yeah. think we're, the bike industry is going to have a good year for 2023. Yeah. It's going to be great. I think so I'm looking forward to it. Cool. Well, thanks for having me on. This yeah. has been a pleasure. Um, we should do it again next time over beers. Sounds and then good. we'll get down to the real, the real, real information. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Thanks Aaron. Adios. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods and that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge understanding and while i think i'm reasonably smart and i know quite a bit of stuff i want to make it clear that the opinions that i share on this podcast are belief systems built on what i've experienced to this point and that some of those opinions are pretty strong but they are also loosely held That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. 
Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.